Hello and welcome back to episode 11 of the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined today by Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand, and by our special guest, Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And they're with me to talk about the first of a series of biblical theological subjects, the seven days of creation. I want to know how the seven days of creation permeate or structure the whole Bible. Alistair and Rita, welcome to the show. It's good to join you. It's great to have you with us. Yeah, Uh, Rita, you're there too. Great. First of all, Alistair, what, what happens in each of the seven days of creation? So it begins with the creation of time. Um, So the first day of creation, the Lord, well, first of all, we should step back before the days of creation and think about what the days of creation are answering. There's a problem with the world that is originally created. It's formless and it's void. So it needs to be given form and it needs to be filled. And so the first day of creation is the first act of forming and it's the creation of light. And we think of the creation of light very often just as a thing that fills the universe. So there's light put in, light-bearing bodies, things like that. But the creation of light is primarily the creation of two distinct times, the daytime and the night. And so that distinction is a division between the day and the night, and that's the first day. The second day is the division between two bodies of water, the waters above and the waters beneath. And we should probably think of those in below waters, above waters, and that sort of way. It can help us to understand that it depends where the waters are coming from, what symbolism they bear. So the waters below are connected with death, the deep, with the subterranean world, whereas the waters above are the waters of rain, of blessing, the waters of God's presence and heaven. So those sorts of distinctions, I think, can be helpful when we're thinking about some of the symbolism of baptism, other things like that. So you've got a division in time, the creation of the day and the night, a division between the waters above and the waters beneath, a sort of vertical division. And then on the third day, you have the creation of the sea and the dry land as the dry land is brought up out of the water. And then as a second act of creation on the third day, there is the creation of vegetation. And so the third day is a sort of day that straddles the two sections, the first section dealing with forming and the second section dealing with filling and that second section begins with the creation of the bodies of light to divide the day from the night sun moon and stars those two great bodies of light the sun and the moon and then the other bodies of light the celestial bodies the stars and that's the fourth day which if you think about it corresponds very neatly with the first day so you have the first second and third days corresponding in a panel structure with the fourth, fifth, and sixth days. The fifth day fills the waters below with the fish and has birds flying across the face of the firmament or the waters above. The sixth day is the filling of the land, and that's the creation of the animals, and then in a second special act of creation, the creation of man as God's image. And all of that story culminates with a final day where the Lord steps back and rests in his labour and separates that day, sets it apart and sanctifies it for the rest of his people as well as the Sabbath. And uh, day two giving us the firmament, the shell, or what we perceive presumably as our sky, the the firmament between heaven and earth. And day four giving us the, the sun, moon and stars, the rulers of the old creation. 
Are these a literal seven days, do you think, Alistair? I think, yes. I think it's intended to be read as uh, an account of, I mean, the important thing is that God follows the work week that he wants his people to follow. And so it's setting a pattern for the way that human beings work afterwards. We see that in the description of the Ten Commandments. In the Fourth Commandment, it's the creation of the Lord is the pattern for the work of his people. We see a different understanding given of the seven of the seventh day in um, Deuteronomy chapter five in the second publication of the Ten Commandments, where it's connected with the deliverance from Egypt. So taking those things together, I think we see both of those present an aspect of the meaning of the seventh day and the seven days more generally. The first, it's connected with creation, and the second, it's create, connected with redemption, the great act of redemption in the Exodus. And so I think we're supposed to read these as an account of the Lord's labour that then in chapter two already starts to provide a pattern for his creation's labour. And we see that in the pattern of chapter two, which I think follows a seven-day pattern too. How, how does what God created reflect his own throne room in the heavens? We see the God in his throne room in Revelation chapter four. Yeah, so when we think about creation, I think one of the ways that's helpful is to think about the concept of typology as impressing onto things something that is higher than them. And so when we're thinking about the creation, the creation is a way in which God impresses his, through his creative work, his image upon the creation. We see that particularly in the creation of mankind. But the creation more generally is supposed to be ordered according to God's will. Now we have the initial creation is a more general pattern that applies to the whole world. Then there's a more special creation within that, the creation of the Garden of Eden, in which the key image of God, Adam, is placed in the midst and given the task of, of um, ruling there and guarding and keeping. And then the impression is he's going to go out and he's going to bring that pattern out to the world. Now, you see in the garden, I think, some of the things that connect it with heaven. It's the place of the Lord's rule. He walks in the midst of the garden. He communes with man. He teaches man. He prepares man for his own rule. And so what you have is an earthly heaven that corresponds with the heavenly heaven, the higher heavens. And we see the same thing, I think, on a lower level um, from the higher heavens in the heavens above us. So we can see in the stars above, in the sky, some sort of image of the higher heavens. And I think we get a sense of that within some parts of scripture, prophetic parts, places like Revelation elsewhere. And that, I think, can help us to think about what God is doing through creation, through the work of history, as placing his impress upon the world, first of all, in the act of creation, and then through the forming of the world, through his people and through his work by the Spirit, so that in the end, the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, and the great heavenly presence of God will descend to earth, the city descending like a bride prepared for its husband. Well, coming back to the sky or firmament, I mean, in many ways, our sky and what's in our sky reflects the description of God's throne room in Revelation 4, doesn't it? It does in many ways. I think if you go through the book of Revelation, another interesting thing you'll see is ways that it can be mapped onto or related to things like 
the zodiac signs, which are signs in the heaven. Now we go to Genesis chapter one and its description of the creation of the sun, moon and stars. One of the purposes of the stars is as signs. Now, that is not to justify astrology and all these superstitious practices. Rather, it's to say that the Lord creates the stars as a host. And that host is used for the measuring of time. It's used for a sort of symbolic throne room that surrounds the people. And I think we see also on Earth the way that the camp of Israel is designed ah. is even designed to map onto that. And so James Jordan and others, Austin Farrer and others, have suggested that there's a connection to be drawn between the cherubim, for instance, and the different um, creatures or figures at the extents of the zodiac. And so there is a sort of cardinal coordinate, cardinal coordinates correspond with the four figures or faces of the cherubim. Now, I think whatever you make of that, I think it's part of a broader picture where we do see the heavens above being mapped onto the earth beneath. And we say this as part of our prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're hoping for the pattern of heaven to be brought down to earth. And that can be something that's morally achieved as the will of God is done upon earth as people obey him, as people are brought to the gospel and to accept Christ and his rule is established in our lives and communities. But it's also seen in that broader sense. And I think that is one of the ways that we can see a parallel between the heavens above and then the sort of heavens that we see in terms of the ruling structures of society or other things like that. So if you go through the um, prophetic literature. This is something you'll often see, even in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, or his um, Olivet Discourse, rather. You see the way in which the heavens are images, and the stars within the heavens, the sun and the moon, are images of rulers. So the sun and the moon being dark, or the sun being dark and the moon turned to blood, the heavens being rolled up like a scroll, or the stars falling from the heavens, all these sorts of images are images of not cosmic collapse but the sort of collapse of a world the world of um, the Jewish people for instance or the world of Babylon or the world of some other great nation or power. So when Jesus talks about the stars falling from the sky and and uh, this is often interpreted apocalyptically he's he's talking about the end of the old creation and the destruction of Jerusalem. Yes and that is an apocalyptic image it's it's the collapse of the world. But the world in the sense of we might talk about the Roman world or the world of um, the medieval world or something like that. It's a whole world order that is collapsing. And we can think about the significance there of the temple and the whole sacrificial system, the whole way in which people relate to God, Jew and Gentile distinctions as they play out in the old covenant, the way in which the people of God are constituted, the way in which they understand themselves as a people. All of those things collapse with the fall of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so there's an overlap period between the old and new covenants. But then AD 70 is the final collapse of the old covenant order. And in its place, we have the new covenant structures. And that is a collapse of the heavens and the earth 
the shaking of the heavens and the earth, as the author of Hebrews can put it, and in its place, a new heavens and a new earth is established that has not yet been fully consummated, but has been definitively established in through the work of Christ and then um, through the removal of the old covenant order in AD 70. Well, Rita, I'm going to bring you in a bit, but we, we need to ask Alistair first how the seven days of creation permeate and indeed structure the whole Bible. So I think we already see the seven days of creation being seen as a structuring device in chapter two of Genesis. People often say that these two chapters are at odds with each other. But if you actually see them more closely, you can see that the pattern of the first creation account is mirrored in the second creation account. Now, we can maybe think of this as the difference between uh, God's eye, well, think of it as the difference between satellite and street view. Um, one is very much looking from the perspective of the heavens, seeing the earth being created, and the other takes a grounded perspective on the earth and then talks about the way that things are structured. And you see the pattern playing out. First of all, there's a formlessness and void. There's no man to till the earth. The earth hasn't been tamed or structured or um, it hasn't been worked. It's covered with a surge or watered with a surge or a mist or some other um, body of water that goes up to cover it. And then we have the fact that there is no, the vegetation hasn't fully developed to cover the, the land. Now, what happens then is the creation of light. And the light bearer is the human being, the man that's created to divide good from evil, the day from the night, and the one who's created to be a means of ruling and establishing God's authority in the world. So if we think about in chapter one, the heavens above are ruled by the sun and the moon. There's a sort of structure with the larger and the lesser light. And then the man and the woman are created to rule the earth and the seas. In that second account, you have then the creation of man as the first day. The second day is the creation of the firmament, the heavens above and the earth beneath. And that is through the making of the garden. And so the garden as the heaven realm is divided from the earth. The third day corresponds with the planting of vegetation, the division of the waters from the land. And you have the same thing in the second account. So first of all, the land is the lands are divided as the waters the land was formerly just covered as the deep covered the earth and um, the first account in that second account within that sort of russian doll within the larger russian doll we have the waters covering covering the earth in the form of a surge and now or some sort of mist or some other body of water and now it's divided into rivers that flow out from Eden and divide up the lands which are described according to the rivers that flow through them. So the land of Havilah, where the gold is good, for instance. And then on the third day is the second stage. There's all the vegetation, the trees of the garden are planted. Fourth day, the lights are placed in the firmament. Adam is placed in the garden. The fifth and the sixth days, the animals are created. The animals are brought to the man and he's given the charge of naming them. And then as a second climactic act, act on the day of the sixth day, um, we have the creation of the woman and the woman is brought to the man. They become one flesh. And then what corresponds with the Sabbath? It's the man and the woman being naked and unashamed and the institution of marriage. And so throughout scripture, we see that melding together of the themes of marriage and of Sabbath. We can think about the way in which the eschatological image is of a wedding feast 
And so the sabbatical theme does connect with marital themes. Well, Rita, this is uh, something that we've talked about called biblical theology. Uh, and what is biblical theology? What is Alistair doing? Uh, the biblical theology is seeing the big narr narrative arc of Scripture and it's drawing all of those threads together, seeing how the whole story kind of fits together and how it is one whole complete unit. It's not just bits of stories along the way, but it is it is one story the whole way through. And that, that was going to be my question for Alistair. Is, is that big narrative arc uh, kind of the whole thing really as you said right at the beginning there that the problem with the with the creation is that it's void it's formless and it needs to be filled but the the big narrative arc is that it's filling it with god's glory do you think that is the big narrative arc that we see i think that's certainly part of it we can think about the way that at the end of the creation account with the sabbath and everything the lord actually hasn't finished creating the world we can see that in the account of chapter two there's a lot more to be done the fish haven't filled the sea the birds haven't filled the heavens human humanity hasn't filled the earth and tamed the earth there's still all this work to be done and we see that even in the naming of the animals there's this expectation that all these things that weren't named on the first three days when the lord names things need to be named and there needs to be a structuring of the world there needs to be the filling of the world and that's what mankind is called to do be fruitful multiply fill the earth subdue it exercise dominion over all of its creatures if we think about that that's essentially an unpacking a sort of refracting of the filling and forming so be fruitful multiply fill the earth that's all filling and then subdue and exercise dominion that's forming and as we go through the text, I think we see that and it moves towards the situation where there is this glorious filling of the world with the Lord's presence. And we can trace that theme of creation, I think, all the way through. We can see it in key images such as the tabernacle. We can see it in terms of the larger structures, things like um, the way in which history is divided and ordered according to principles of Sabbath, Sabbath year through jubilee and mega jubilees and through this great movement towards the great day of the lord and i think those things can help us to maybe understand something of the unity of the story of scripture it's not just these isolated accounts but there is this sort of backbone of biblical narrative that's bearing the whole thing so the whole of scripture and the whole of life and the whole of the universe is somehow extrapolated out from these seven days of creation Yes, we can see it as, as very much developing the work that the Lord started on in those seven days. The creation is something that is not just a closed event in the past. It sets the terms for ongoing patterns. So the way I've described it, for instance, the first day is the Lord striking up a beat. It's the evening morning pattern that we see in the days that follow. And we can see the way that time is important throughout the creation account. And this happens in a number of different ways. The two days on the extremities, the first and the seventh day, and the key day in the middle, are all days concerned with time. So the seventh day fill, finishes a pattern and creates a pattern, the seven-day pattern. And then it's a rest, a standing back, and a recognizing the completion of the, the pattern. It's a resolution that has been arrived at. The first day is the setting of the rhythm. And then the fourth day is the keeping of the pattern through the um, heavenly bodies that are there to for times, for seasons, and for signs. 
now as we go through the story of scripture we'll see that time is absolutely essential and that time that started up is not the fullness of time it's just setting the terms in which time will be carried out from that point onwards and so one of the things that i think we see at the end is the way in which as time is completed it's a resolution of all of these themes that are first introduced back in chapter one so when we're reading the scripture i think genesis chapter one is just one chapter of many thousands of chapters but when we're dealing with that chapter, we're dealing with something that is fundamental for everything else that follows. And once you've got that chapter understood, a lot of other things will start to fall into place a bit better. And you'll be able to see some of its patterns occurring in the most surprising places. Well, Rido and Alistair, what's the significance of the number seven in Scripture? I'm sure Alistair has something much better to say than I could say. This is so fascinating for me. <laughs> well, I think it is helpful when we... When we think about numbers in scripture, it can be very easy to think about them just as having some sort of strange abstract significance. So we think about the number seven as the number of completeness, and maybe the number three as well, having something of that significance, or the number 10. Now, that's one way of thinking about it. I think it's better to keep these terms, these numbers, as close as possible to the concrete things that they derive their meaning from. So seven is related to the seventh day. The law created in seven days. And so the seventh day is the day of completion of that creation pattern. It's connected with a very specific series of things. It's not just a number that has a tag connected with it. The number of completion. That's, it's more specific than that. It's grounded within the story of Genesis chapter one. Now, as we move through scripture, we'll see that there are all sorts of ways that the number seven is played upon because it has all that symbolism that's associated with the significance of creation now when we're reading scripture what we can often see is there's this core sort of snowball of meaning that's connected with a particular term and that rolls down the hill of scripture and it keeps gathering more things along the way and as it does it gathers all these other connections and levels of meaning so by the time we reach the end it's dense with these rich associations far beyond the original association that things off and start that ball rolling so if we're thinking about the theme of seven we might think about the way in which seven first comes in the context of the sabbath it's the seventh day then we see seven playing out a few times in different ways in the story of genesis you can see it even in chapter four um, being avenged 70 times seven Cain being avenged seven times that's already occurring there we're seeing patterns of seven within the genealogies now, that's an initial early appearance, and we see sevens at certain points in um, key stories. So you can think about the way in which seven occurs within the story of Jacob or within the story of Joseph, the two sets of sevens that Jacob works for his two wives, or the two weeks, um, as it were, that are associated with the, the famine and the uh, years of plenty. But when we're going beyond that, I think we can see in the book of Exodus that the theme of seven starts to open up a bit more. It's connected with the Exodus and it begins to take on a meaning with time being related to space. So we can think about the tabernacle is a sort of spatial version of Sabbath. And then we go even further into the book of Leviticus, you got to a place like Leviticus chapter 23, and the whole principle of seven 
Sabbath is refracted. Now, back in chapter 31 of Exodus, we're told that the Sabbath is the sign of the covenant. The person who does not keep the Sabbath will be cut off from the people. It's a sign between the Lord and his people. And that should remind us of things like circumcision in Genesis chapter 17, just as circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. If anything, the sign of the covenant with um, through Moses is the sign of the Sabbath. And we see that in things like um, the law concerning the manna or the way in which the Lord meets with his people on key points related to the seventh day. And then the way in which certain patterns are played out within the tabernacle itself. But when we get to Leviticus, that is developed even further. So you have the whole calendar is built around the principle of the Sabbath. It begins in the first month with a seven day feast after the day of Passover, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, first celebration, seven days. And then you have the feast of first, the day of first fruits. The day of first fruits leads to a pattern of seven times seven that leads us to the day of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. After that, you have the seventh month, which begins with the Day of Trumpets, and it's the one that contains the most of the feasts. So you have the Day of Trumpets, you have the Day of Atonement, you have the special day at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, and of course, the day, the Feast of Tabernacles, another seven-day feast. And so you're already seeing the seven start to structure these things. And there are seven feasts that are celebrated. Again, a seven principle. As we go even further, we'll see that that seven principle is not just at the level of the single year. It's something that's played out over numbers of years. So the seventh year is the Sabbath year. And then the seven times seven years cycle leads to the Jubilee year, which is the great year of release. And then as we read through scripture even further, that principle opens up yet further. So we see things like the prophetic books bringing this theme out of Sabbath. You can see the Sabbath principle playing out in the period of the exile. Israel or Judah is placed into exile for 70 years until the land has had its Sabbaths. Um, so that's the period of Babylon's dominance. And then there is this vision that Daniel receives where there will be seven times 70 years, a sort of 70 weeks of years, and that principle is played out on a higher stage still. Now, already we've gone back a bit. We've already seen the Jubilee pattern blown up to 10 times with the creation of the temple. So the temple is finished and the temple complex in the 500th year after the Exodus. And so that's a mega Jubilee, as it were. And then as we go even further, we can see the promise of restoration is connected with Sabbath themes. It's the context in which Daniel prophesies. It's also the context in which Ezekiel prophesies. So he prophesies about this jubilee that's expected. And we see that particularly in his vision of the temple, which is built around numbers 25, 49, 50. If you number the steps, for instance, into the inner place, you'll get um. 50 or 49 as you're measuring that you can see the measurements of particular parts of the building 25 cubits or 50 cubits and the more that you map it out the more you realize this is a jubilee building it's a building that is spatially um, expressing that principle of sabbath and sabbath raised to this higher power 
Well, we're going to talk about the uh, tabernacle uh, next time uh, in the next podcast. We've got a lot to cover, but can I just ask you, before we move on to how the sevens are reflected in the New Testament, how do the seven days structure the book of Daniel, for example? Yes, I think we've already seen the principle of seven within that, um, the 70 weeks of years. Now, I'm less convinced by some of the um, chiasms that are suggested for the book of Daniel. I think we can see the principle of seven playing out in many ways in Daniel already. I think we can see key things that are picked up, for instance, in Revelation with the principle of seven, um, things like the way in which um, there are seven heads of the beast. Now, that connects with the seven heads that we can see of the four different beasts within Daniel. There are other things we can see. Seven periods of time passing over Nebuchadnezzar when he's cast out from among men. We can see the principle of seven expressed in the 70 weeks of years of Daniel and then of Jeremiah that Daniel refers to, or the 70 years that Daniel refers to from Jeremiah's prophecy, and then the 70 weeks of years of his prophecy. Now, if we divide up those 70 weeks of years, we already have a seven-year period, seven weeks of years period at the beginning of it. So there's a jubilee within that higher jubilee. And we can see the way in which Daniel is using those sorts of principles of Sabbath and jubilee, I think, already within his book. And now I think another way we can think about this is the way that Daniel plays out in his own life the pattern of the greater story of Israel, and then the pattern that's going to be played out on that greater stage still in terms of the 70 weeks of years. So Daniel, for instance, goes into the lion's den in what is likely the first year of the reign of King Darius. Now, Darius comes to the throne in his 62nd year. That 62 years is connected with 62 that we find elsewhere in the book, which is the 62 weeks in the prophecy of the seven weeks of or 70 weeks of years and then you have the way in which even the um the weights that are given in chapter six could be related possibly to the number 60 or in chapter five could be related to the number 62 either 62 or 91 depending upon how you understand the um, parson is that two shekels or two minors um, but depending on that, you can get either 91 or 62. And then we're seeing that Daniel has this release from the lion's den in that 70th year that corresponds to the years of the kings. And then that's an image of Israel itself being released from the lion's den of exile at the end of the prophecy of Jeremiah, which is the 70 years. And then that leads to the, the next prophecy that is on that higher level. And so it, I think those principles are playing out in Daniel. I'm slightly less convinced by some of the chiastic structures that are suggested for the book. Mm. How are the seven days reflected in the New Testament, Alistair, in, in the Gospels, for example? I think particularly within the book of John, um, Jesus teaches concerning the Sabbath on a number of occasions. It's a key source of conflict in chapters five and nine, healing on the Sabbath, um, but beyond that, I think we see the way in which the book has principles of seven baked into it. So there are the first chapter leading up to chapter two, you have a series of the next day and the day after. And those days, many have argued, lead to a number 
they're connected with the number seven. And so you either get the uh, feast of the Cana on the seventh or the eighth day. I think it's the eighth day. It's the beginning of a new week. It corresponds with the first day of the new week of the resurrection. You have seven signs that are performed, key signs. So you have the um, feast at Cana, the wedding feast at Cana. You have the healing of the rich nobleman's son. You have the, the healing of the man at the sheep pool. You have the multiplication of the loaves, walking upon the water. You have the healing of the man born blind in chapter nine, and then the raising of Lazarus as the seventh sign. You have seven I am sayings. And then when you get to the end of the book, I think you see some of these Sabbath themes from the book of Ezekiel also playing out. And there are little hints here and there also that there are some jubilee themes there. So 46 years we've been building this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. 46 and three is 49. It's a jubilee pattern. You are not yet 50 years of age. Jesus is only about 30 years of age. Why 50? Uh, is mentioned and so these sorts of things i think are clues that there are jubilee or sabbath themes at play and that would be the main example i think but we see them elsewhere how do the seven days permeate the book of revelation the, the seven churches for example seven churches seven angels seven stars you have the seven bowls the seven trumpets and you can maybe think about the seven trumpets that's playing out an Old Testament theme as well. It's connected with the liberation. Um, it's the story of Jericho, the blowing of the seven trumpets, the seven circuits on the seventh day. All of these are jubilee themes, and it can help us to understand what's taking place there. So if we read the story of Exodus and then leading up to the story of, of Joshua, in the story of the Exodus, what's connected with um, the feast of Pentecost it's the giving of the law. And so seven times seven, and then that day leads to the giving of the law in Jewish tradition. And that's particularly taken up within um, Luke's account on the day of Pentecost. That's part of the background, this parallel between the day of Pentecost and the, give, the connection between the day of Pentecost and the giving of the law, and the parallels and contrast between the giving of the law and the giving of the spirit. But in Revelation, you have this deliverance of the land into its the ownership of the people who should properly possess it. And that's what you see in the events of Jericho, that they're set free in that initial deliverance event. And then when they come to the sort of jubilee themes that are playing out in Jericho, the land is being taken definitively and symbolically in that act from the people who have wrongly possessed it. And it's going to be given back to its proper owners. And so that is, I think, what we're seeing in the book of Revelation as well. Again, we have themes that might remind us of Rahab, the prostitute, and then the, the bride that is formed as people come out of that city. Um, so I think we already see it just in the numbers, but there are also deeper thematic links that lead us up to an understanding of the way that these themes, as they've gathered all of these other things along the course of scripture as that snowball of symbolism has rolled down the hill of scripture it's picked up all these other associations and so we're seeing the connections between sabbath and wedding feast for instance we're seeing the way in which christ is the one who is connected with seven in various ways he's holding the seven stars the seven lamps the seven lampstands all these sorts of symbolisms help us to see 
themes that we might have seen as distinct coming together and all belonging to this larger constellation of symbolism that is all drawing from and feeding into the concept of the Sabbath, the seven days, and then the broader idea of creation is being refracted through these. I mean, you can almost see, see it as sort of fractal patterns, as Michael Bull argues. Rido, as we close, comments, questions? It's, it, to me, it's so fascinating. You know, kind of the, when I was first introduced to biblical theology and kind of seeing these patterns the whole way through scripture, it just opened up so much for me. And it just seemed to make sense. I think for Brent and I, uh, we see in New Zealand that not many people kind of think about the Bible in this way. What, uh, and even though we do, it kind of, it's, um, and, and it's opened up so much for us. Where are some resources to go to to help people kind of think through these things uh, and to kind of equip themselves in this kind of way? I would highly recommend the work of James B. Jordan. Um, you can actually get his book through New Eyes free on the internet if you search for it. But I'd recommend getting an actual hard copy because you'll probably use it a lot once you get into it. It's one of these books that not many people know, but the people who know it, it, tend to, it tends to have been just a, a life-changing experience reading that book and getting into it and understanding its arguments. Peter Lightheart's work as well. Peter Lightheart leads the Theopolis Institute that I work for. I've also been doing a lot of work myself in just providing people with accessible biblical teaching and doing it chapter by chapter. Um, I'm currently working on a complete commentary on the whole of scripture and I'm about, I'm nearly finishing. And um, so I've got the rest of the minor prophets, Isaiah and the Song of Songs, and then it's just filling in certain gaps. So that's all available for free online. If people want to look around at my website, they'll be able to find it there. I have a SoundCloud and um, YouTube account. Again, you can follow it. I'm doing it in a lecture form there, but it's also divided by chapter. Alistair Roberts and Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Thank you, gentlemen, both for your time. And next time, uh, we hope to come and talk about the tabernacle. Alistair, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Brent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. Thank you.